Welcome everyone to the Health, Happiness and Planet podcast. In today's episode, we are going to focus primarily on the topic planet, on how we can help preserve the well-being of our environment so that we can also thrive, be healthier and happier in this stunning place that we get to enjoy for just a short moment. I am honored to present you an amazing guest who comes from Tasmania, Australia. His name is Craig Leeson. Craig is a passionate ocean and mountain explorer, surfer, diver, aviator, and an award-winning filmmaker, television presenter, news correspondent, and entrepreneur. He is the director, explorer, narrator, and writer of the multi-award-winning documentary film A Plastic Ocean, which was released in year 2017. He is also the producer, director, and writer of the new documentary called The Last Glaciers. Craig is the 2022 TAS Australian of the Year Award recipient. He is the CEO of Leeson Media International, Leeson Global Media and Ocean Vista Films and founder of the Hong Kong Film Festival. Craig is the sustainability partner and advisor to various large corporations and governments. He has advised governments around the world on environment issues and was instrumental in helping frame and introduce legislation banning single-use plastics to the Colombian and Mexican Congresses. He has also advised and worked with the banks of oceans and single-use plastics-related issues and helped launch a global health oceans initiative in Fiji. Craig has worked with the world's major broadcasters as a producer and foreign correspondent, including BBC, CNN, Bloomsburg, PBS, National Geographic Channel, Discovery Channel, and more. His documentary filmmaking career began in year 1999, and since then he has won various awards coming from many countries. For one documentary alone, he already won 17 awards for A Plastic Ocean, which has been translated to more than 25 languages and was released on Netflix by Leonardo DiCaprio. The documentary A Plastic Ocean has been publicly screened in cinemas and at public events in over 70 countries on six continents. There have been over 2,000 screenings globally hosted by government agencies, nonprofits, schools, universities, individuals, multilateral institutions, corporations, aquariums, and others, including the Smithsonian Institute the Australian and UK parliaments, and the Mexican Senate. The film counts among its patrons of UNESCO. Craig's new featured film called The Last Glaciers will be screened globally by IMAX. I am thrilled to introduce you to this amazing guest, Craig Leeson. Hello, Craig, and welcome to the Health, Happiness and Planet podcast. It's an honor to have you here. It's great to be here. Thanks a lot for your time. One of the things that I always like to think about is reflecting on when we were younger and about the questions we and the realizations we have had. And one of the things that I'm curious to hear about, when was the point of time in your life when you looked around, you looked at the world and you said, wow, this is an amazing place to be in. Was this when you were very, very young or was it like later in your life? Yeah, no, when I was very young, I, I was fortunate enough to grow up uh, in a very beautiful place, uh, an island called Tasmania, uh, the island state of Australia. And I grew up on the beach. And so I spent most of my time on the beach, playing, surfing, interacting with the ocean. And so from a very early age uh, and being a very curious young human, I was exploring the rock pools and looking at the animals and turning over rocks and wondering how all these animals could survive in these tiny little biospheres when the tide went out and be able to thrive and what it took. So from a young age, I had a great interest in wildlife and nature. I was a voracious reader. So I read books and consumed books on wildlife and nature, birds. I could name pretty much every bird on the planet if you put a picture of it in front of me and tell you whether it was male or female by the age of eight. Wow. So for me, it was a lifestyle, but also a hobby and a great interest. And I read a lot about other explorers and what they were doing. And that I think was something that I then wanted to become, you know, a David Attenborough, a documentary filmmaker, somebody who actually got to do this for a living. 
and travel the world. Wow, that's so amazing. Yeah, especially that you learned about it so early in life. You had already that connection to Mother Nature. For example, in my case, I was realizing that much later in life, when I was really deep into the corporate world and I was getting sicker and sicker with my health, and I realized that the, the further away I was getting from nature, the sicker I was getting. Mm. And then now that I'm turning towards nature and, and working with nature, that's where I feel I'm thriving now much more than before. And that's one of the things that a lot of people only realize, either in the middle of their life or later in life, that they say, well, the closer I get to nature, the better I will feel and the happier I'll be. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, nature sustains us. Nature has everything we need. And yes. in fact, everything that we construct around us comes from nature, whether it's an idea to build something, whether it's a kind of food or medicine, we get these ideas from nature and we replicate them. Um, the problem is, in many cases, when we synthesize what nature does, we do it in a very unhealthy way for ourselves. And as you say, to your point, when you move away from nature, then you're moving away from the goodness. Uh, and that's very much so we see that in diets today and what people are eating. A healthy diet will cure just about everything. If you eat well, if you eat organically, if you eat food that hasn't been sprayed with pesticides and glyphosate, that is, you know, non-GMO, then your body reacts to that because you're sustaining everything on a cellular level. You're feeding your mitochondria, these little things that kind of control everything and, and our well-being with inside of us. And when you start studying things at a cellular level, then you really start to begin and understand how connected we are to everything, um, and to your point. Yeah. So at the end of the day, we are nature. Yeah. So therefore, we should not divorce ourselves from nature. And one of the things that also I just realized that the default state for the human body is to heal. The human body is always trying to heal and to be healthy. So if we do not get in the way and if we do not throw into our bodies bad food, if we do not get in contact with all these toxins, then our body will always be trying to be healthy in a healthy state. Yeah, well, we've evolved over thousands and thousands of years to be in that state to optimize ourselves as an organic machine. And there's ways that we evolve to do that. And it's everything from not just nutrition, but it, it is getting up in the morning and exposing yourself to early sunlight so that you can get your biorhythms going, which helps you sleep at night. And when you sleep well, that's when your body repairs itself the most, but you have to be in a deep sleep for that to happen. So all of these rhythms that are ingrained in our DNA, these switches that we turn on and off, consciously or unconsciously, actually uh, are so good for us. But we're not taught that in school anymore. We're not taught how to turn those switches on to optimize our health. But I think now, you know, through social media and podcasts like yours, that information is now very much available to a lot of people. Whereas before, the only information we used to get primarily about health, generally speaking, was from our doctor, our GP. And many yeah. doctors trained under traditional Western medicine aren't trained to actually heal us. They're trained to stop the problems by giving us medicine that will stop the problem from getting in the way of our daily movements and our daily routine, but it doesn't actually fix and heal the problem itself. Yeah. Um, but that's something that, of course, indigenous people are very much aware of. And it's interesting that uh, now many uh, medicines are going back to some of the practices that indigenous people taught hundreds and, and even thousands of years ago. Yeah, so true. And I think that today, the way how doctors have obtained their studies, they know about putting band-aids, but they do not know to find the root cause of why we actually got certain symptoms. Uh, and that's where I think there is definitely room for improvement in the healthcare system. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, you know, the healthcare system is an industry like any other. Its goals are particularly with amongst, uh, you know, the executives that run these companies is to maximize shareholder profit. That's just the system that we have, you know, the, the Western democratic <laughs> capitalist system is built on that. So the primary concerns generally as an industry isn't for our well-being, it is for creating profit. That's not to say that your local GP doesn't care about you, and I'm sure most of them do, and most of them have altruistic ideals. 
but I don't think that, generally speaking, today I'm seeing evidence where doctors are being taught how to actually heal people by going and finding out what the root cause of their problem is and changing the way that they do that rather than giving them a tablet to stop the problem they've got for an hour or two from inconveniencing their lifestyle. And so good doctors actually do that. They'll go and find, look at your nutrition. Um, they'll look at the way that you sleep. They'll look at yeah. the environment that you're living in. You know, do you live under power lines and have a great deal of energy flooding your body? Are you leaving the Wi-Fi router on of an evening? <laughs> and is that interfering with your sleep? These are things that can cause problems. But basically, you know, if you eat well, if you train 20 to 30 to 40 minutes a day, and that can be just walking, just get movement, you need movement, and you sleep well, and you catch early morning sun, you're going to start yourself onto a very, very healthy lifestyle. Fantastic. As you got into the filmmaking business, when did you realize that you could use those skills to do documentaries and to spread the word where people can see what are the things that we're doing today to our environment? When I was young, um, I learned about nutrition very early because I was mm -hmm. a competitive surf lifesaver. In Australia, the, the biggest sport is surf lifesaving. And I used to represent um, my state, Tasmania, at the national titles. And we trained a lot. We, you know, we trained three times a day. Uh, nutrition was a big part of that. If you ate well, you trained better and you optimized your performance. If you didn't, you would feel it. Your body would be sluggish and you wouldn't compete at the same level. So I learned and studied about nutrition from a young age and learned that I could actually tune my body like a car. If you put bad fuel into a car, it doesn't <laughs> run well. So if you eat hamburgers and synthetic foods and lots of sugar and, and sodas and things like that, then my body just wouldn't perform well. So I learned very early on to grow food. And my parents, my mother did that. She grew a vegetable garden, which most people did in our community then. Um, so we had very healthy vegetables straight from the garden without pesticides. And I found that eating those sorts of foods optimized my performance. And I took that into filmmaking because particularly with the kind of films we do, we, we're in hostile environments. The last film that, that, that we've just, we're about to release, The Last Glaciers, you know, we're climbing 6,000 meter plus peaks in ranges around the world in the Himalaya and the Andes and the Alps. And you have to be fit to be able to not only get up to those kinds of environments, but also to carry all of this quarter of a ton of, of cinematic camera equipment and then be able to operate it. So being fit and healthy means that you're also able to optimize your work time much better and you're able to produce a better product. And for us, that means producing documentaries that um, allow us to explain what's happening in the natural world. Fantastic. When I see so many people struggling with their health, I just imagine to myself, What could they do if they would be healthy? How many goals they could achieve in life? How many visions and passions could be actually realized if they would really have their health? And that's one of my motivation as well, to guide the people and to open their eyes to see what are the things that I can do to thrive again as a human, as a person, so that I do not always have to focus on trying to get through the day, get somehow healthier and not even be able to think about what other goals I have in life, what I want to achieve at the end of my lifespan. And that's the things that motivate me. I had to see how can I make people healthier, happier so that they can achieve their ambitions. Yeah. And yeah. I would like to move to the topic from plastic because that was one of the first documentaries that I personally saw, which you created. And I was totally shocked. And at the same time, I was very thankful that you put this out there. And it was a multi-award winning documentary. So could you tell us a little bit the fundamental understanding on plastics and why are they so harmful for us in the environment and for the people? Yeah, well, when we started that documentary, and it took eight years to make, we started that in 2010 and released it in 2017. But um, we started not actually knowing the answer to these questions. But what we knew was that there was a problem. We were seeing animals, particularly in the marine environment, that were being strangled by plastic Uh, detritus, we were seeing it on the beaches, and it was becoming more and more evident that this was a product that was starting to impact us and the natural world around us. But there was not a great deal of data, scientific data, on exactly how much was there, where it was, where it was circulating, and what effects it was having. 
And so Plastic Ocean started out, as it says on the tin, as a film about the ocean and how we were messing it up by throwing all this garbage into it. And, you know, we had shots of whales that were dying because they ingested plastic and seals and all sorts of other animals, seabirds, having these problems. But what we realised very quickly as we travelled to 21 countries around the world to film this documentary was that this was already having an impact on us humans and our health because the ocean provides us with a great deal of our food. Most of our protein, particularly for blue communities, comes from the ocean. So we started to look at the human health impact. And when we saw how this plastic travels up the food chain, and ultimately we're at the top of the food chain, we wanted to look at what that meant for us humans. And when we started to investigate that, that's when we realized that, whoa, we have a major problem here. Um, these chemicals have the potential to interrupt natural hormonal generation ability to mimic and block key chemicals that our body produces at very tiny amounts that help us develop, particularly in children. And then when we realize that we are ingesting these plastics chemicals and they are interfering with us, then we started to fund and report on the findings of doctors who was doing research on this. And so a plastic ocean moved from being a marine documentary into being a human health documentary and some of the findings in it were extremely scary. And since the film was released, a lot more studies have been done and we now realize that it's actually a lot worse than we even realized or were able to show in the film. Wow, and I think a lot of people have the perception that we do not have that plastic issue because we have all these nice recycling systems. We just have to separate our garbage and it's out of sight, out of mind, so everything is fine. But in reality, do you know a percentage of all that plastic that we separate in our garbage at home actually really gets recycled and how much ends up in landfills? Yeah, look, it varies from country to country. In the US, for example, it's only 7% that is actually recycled. Germany has a far higher percentage of plastics. It's around 40 to 50 percent, but that's because Germany recognized the problem in 1991 and, as we show in the film, legislated to make manufacturers responsible for the plastic products they produce. So that's called kind of cradle to cradle responsibility. And that's a model that has worked very successfully. But in my opinion, across the board, recycling is a con. It doesn't work. It was never meant to work. And the infrastructure has never been set up so that it will work. It was an idea that was actually brought about by the plastics manufacturing industry to put the blame for plastic pollution on the consumers. So what they said, and they came up with the marketing and the advertisements, which started in the 60s in America, which showed a, an indigenous Native American crying when he saw plastic in the natural environment. And that was meant to tug at the heartstrings, but what they wanted to do, so that the plastic manufacturers could continue to make this product, they wanted to shift the blame from them to the consumer. So in other words, as a consumer, if you don't recycle this, then the problems that we see in the environment become your fault. And that allowed the manufacturers to continue on. So recycling was an idea that was formulated by the plastic manufacturing industry so that they could keep making a product that uh, was causing immense damage and that we consumers would feel responsible for. Very few governments after that campaign started set up infrastructure so that people could recycle. Uh, even today, that infrastructure doesn't exist in many places around the world. And even where it does, re plastics can only be reused. Even the best plastics, the PETs and, and these sorts of plastics can only be recycled six to eight times before their molecular structure starts to break down to a point where it's just not usable anymore. And then that gets discarded and it stays in the environment. And what we now know is that many of these plastics will persist in the environment from between anything from 400 to over a thousand years. And whilst they're there, they're leaching these chemicals into the environment, which is getting into our aquifers, it's polluting our water table, It's destroying the natural environment for other species to exist in. And we now know it's creating these deep human health consequences in all of us that we're only just starting to understand. Yeah, yeah. So it was really almost like a human experiment now because we have companies who are producing so much plastic every single year, 
but none of these companies really start to investigate or to analyze first what are the consequences for us as humans or for the animals or for the environment. All of this just comes later. And that's something that I was very shocked about to hear that no matter what product or what chemicals are put out in the market, usually as a consumer, I thought with my previous mindset, if it's on the shelf, it must be safe. It must be regulated. It must be tested. Yeah. And it's actually the other way around. They first put it out there and then they see what kind of effects happen. That's true to some degree. Um, it certainly has been in the past. Look, make no mistakes. Plastics have been great for us. They've allowed us to consume foods from countries on the other side of the planet. It has many medical uses. But we made this product and distributed it without understanding exactly what it would do to us in the environment. To your point, particularly in America, where thousands and thousands of chemicals are produced and go into the marketplace every single year, and they're not tested, and the FDA doesn't require them to be tested until there's a problem, and they won't look at those products until an issue arises, which is just disastrous for us. Uh, most people believe that they have a social contract with their government, that the government will protect them. They pay taxes in return. The government will protect them from these problems, will build departments that will look at these things and make sure that they're looked after. That's not the case. The, the way it works in the US is that you can build it, you can put it on the shelf and sell it until someone starts to experience a problem and sues you and then the FDA and lobbies the FDA and then the FDA will look at it and investigate it. Europe's become more different to that. Uh, Europe now, you, if you have a new product, you have to test it and prove it before it goes to the market. But there is pressure on that legislation to change, particularly from US manufacturers and the trade that happens between the US and Europe. They want to level the trade and make it so that their goods can enter the EU without that kind of testing taking place, which I think would be disastrous for Europeans. Wow. So if we would look back at the topic of plastic and we think about all that pollution that's going into the ocean, from your analysis so far, how much of the pollution do you think comes from plastic when it comes to the ocean pollution? Yeah, there's some, some interesting statistics. So we know that up until this point, since we've been mass producing plastic, we've produced about 8.3 billion metric tons of this product. Uh, we've, we've burnt about 12% of that. We've recycled about 7 to 8% of it. The rest of it has ended up in landfill and ergo has gone back into the environment. So 6.3 billion metric tons of that has gone into the environment. And the thing about plastic is there is no way, like it doesn't dissolve once it's removed from your eyesight. It, it consists, it persists somewhere else and creates a problem that will come back at you. Either now we know through the air, in your salt, even through 80% of tap water has microplastics in it now. So we're producing more and more. And if we keep producing plastic at the rate we are today, by 2050, when we will have 9.8 billion people on the planet, we will be producing about 12.3 billion metric tons of plastic. Now, we're, it's already a problem. It's already coating the earth like a disease. And that's with 8.3 billion metric tons. So imagine what it's going to be like then. About 10 million tons enters the ocean every year. And that basically is fed through river systems. And that causes problems in the ocean because once it gets into the ocean gyres, which are the big vortexes that spin around the Earth's engine and move water and animals and control our weather systems. As these plastics are exposed to UV, sunlight, and wave action and oxygen, they break up into smaller and smaller pieces. And they don't disappear. The smaller they become, the smaller the animals are that can consume them as they mistake the plastic for food, which means these chemicals are getting lower down in the food chain. And then as a small fish, or even as we've shown in the film, plankton consumes these micro particles. They're consumed by a bigger fish, which is consumed by a bigger fish. And these plastics and their chemicals bioaccumulate all the way up to the top of the food chain. And what we now know is that fish that we like to eat, particularly at the top of the food chain, like tuna and swordfish, are heavily contaminated with heavy metals and plastic compounds that exist in these products. And so we are producing an enormous amount of it. Now, to visualize what 8.3 billion metric tons 
looks like is very difficult, but I'm a director. And I, so I went to our scientists and I said, look, I don't know what that looks like. You have to give me a visualization. Like if all of that stuff would have been in one place, what would that look like? And they said, well, if you took the eighth largest country on the planet, which is Argentina, and you put all of that plastic that we've consumed and you spread it on the ground in Argentina, it would cover the entire country up to about 30 centimeters above the ground. Wow. So that's how much we've produced to this point. And we're going to produce much more than that as we go on in the future. That's impressive just to visualize that. And you know, when you mentioned the number, I'm like, okay, it sounds like a large number, but I could not visualize or have any idea where can I somehow compare that number to. But just putting that picture out there, it's, it's very, very scary. And if I think about mm. when we are all children, we all had some kind of toy that was made out of some kind of plastic. Either it was a little G.I. Joe or it was a He-Man or, or a little plastic car or any of those. If I think about it, that must still exist somewhere. Yeah. Somewhere in the world, I still yeah. have all those toys that I had in my hands. And everybody who I knew, it's still existing in this world and it's somewhere being contaminated. Yeah, yeah that's right. Well I, well, I sure hope that this will bring a lot of um, eye-openers for people who are listening to this and uh, really to think about it twice when they do purchase certain kind of uh, either toys for their children or, or anything else that contains plastic. Or clothing, yeah, yeah, exactly. And look, you know, there are solutions. And to your point, what you just said there is thinking about what you're purchasing. As consumers, we have a great deal of power. Every dollar we spend sends a message to the producers of these products about what we want and what we'll tolerate. You know, the best thing you can do for yourself, your kids and the environment is to not buy synthetic clothing, buy natural clothing, because as soon as you wash something that's made from nylon or polyester or any of these other plastic threads, then your clothing releases millions and millions and millions of these plastic particles and our washing machine filters can't deal with that and these go straight into the ocean and once again are consumed by animals that we then eat yeah. so just switching out to natural products to organic cotton to recycled textiles made from cotton to hemp clothing is another great product anything that's natural will first of all sends a big message to the textile and garment industry mm -hmm. but secondly it's very kind to the environment yeah, so true. One of the things that I noticed about people who want to do something about the environment, they had a quite a strong focus initially for the rainforest. Everybody's talking about the rainforest being burned and being cut. But in reality, we really have two components there. Yeah, we got the rainforest as well as the oceans. And somehow I noticed from the people who I've been speaking with, they never realized that the oceans are actually giving us like every second breath that we take, it's giving us oxygen to breathe. They usually think, oh, yeah, that comes from the rainforest. That's why we shouldn't cut the trees. But they say, well, actually, we should not also pollute the oceans because if that's not working properly, then we're also not going to be able to breathe. Could you tell us a little bit more about how does the ocean create oxygen for us and not only the trees in the rainforest so you're right we have this and we're taught that forests are very important which they are mm -hmm. many plants take carbon dioxide and they turn that into energy and they release oxygen uh, but it's only part of the story the other great producer of oxygen are phytoplankton which are marine creatures they're tiny little plants that exist in the ocean and they do exactly the same thing as you said every second breath we take comes from phytoplankton as we pollute the oceans, as we pollute the atmosphere as well, and the oceans absorb five times the amount of carbon dioxide than the atmosphere does, which then heats the ocean, we're killing phytoplankton. And so as we destroy the environment that these tiny little plant creatures, which are also food for many other uh, marine animals, as we destroy their environment, we're destroying the very engine that allows us to breathe and exist on the planet. You know, many climate deniers bring up the point that carbon dioxide is incredibly important for the world. It makes forests proliferate and plants need it to use it. And that's true. But it's like anything. When it's balanced, it works. But as soon as we get too much CO2, then that's when we start having problems because the oceans start absorbing them the CO2, which causes the oceans to heat. It causes acidification in the ocean. And as the ocean becomes more acidic, then 
creatures like crabs, anything with a shell as babies, we're starting to see that their shells are dissolving as they develop in some places where this acidity is so high. So we need to understand that these life support systems are being threatened. And as we threaten these life support systems, we're threatening ourselves. And just because you can't see it doesn't mean it isn't happening. And that's why it's important to understand the science and to look at the data and the research that's being done by very credible human beings and institutions like NASA and NOAA uh, and many others around the world that have access to incredible technology that allows them to measure exactly what's happening and then to report this data and provide it to governments around the world so that they have the knowledge which helps them to resolve some of these issues. So what we put into the ocean doesn't just disappear, it stays there. And if you consider the ocean like your bathtub, every single time you have a bath in that same water, you make it dirtier and dirtier and dirtier. And if you continue to bathe in that same water, over the end of a week, you'll see that the water is very dirty. It can become dangerous, filled with pathogens and bacteria and other things that will grow in that environment. The ocean's no different to that. It is a massive bathtub on this planet. And as we continue to fill it with our detritus and throw poor pesticides and toxins and, and sewage into it, then it quickly becomes filled with these products and its ability to cleanse itself, which is through wave action, uh, through movement and through the proliferation of sea grasses and sea kelp and all these sorts of things starts to diminish and then it becomes dirty and we see that happening in the Mediterranean for example which is a smaller bathtub than the great oceans then we start to lose the species the fish the crabs the octopus many of our the mollusks the, the food sources that we rely on start to go and as they go then the smaller creatures go and then we lose the plankton and the phytoplankton which back to your point, provide the oxygen that we need to breathe. Wow. I think the uh, misconception of a lot of people, because they say, well, I can see if a rainforest is getting burned, if it's getting chopped down, but they do not see it so evidently if the ocean is suffering. And as you said, you have the scientists, you have the data that can show what is happening in the ocean. But a lot of people who just look at the ocean, they see a large quantity of water and they say, okay, that's so much water and it's so deep that if I just throw this in here or if we just throw a couple of chemicals in, they just think it's going to magically disappear because again, out of sight, out of mind, and it's going to be somehow processed. Yeah? And, and that's so important that we all realize that that's not the way how it goes. It will stay in our cycle and the whole environment is one big cycle. And it's just like being, as, as you said, in one bathtub. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Mm. And look, there are warning signs that if you look closely enough, you can see in America at the moment on the West Coast, for example, you know, they've got a real problem with sargassum seaweed, which is actually an algae and it's proliferating more than it should. Now, when it's balanced, it provides an incredible habitat for marine animals and helps, for example, baby turtles. It becomes a, a home on the, on the great ocean currents, on the highways that protect it from predators. So baby turtles are able to move around uh, the ocean and, and have that protection. But as it proliferates and washes up onto beaches and starts to rot, it starts to cause greenhouse gas emissions and create bacteria, which other algae feed on. And so if you look at these sorts of problems, if you look at uh, red tide, which has become a big problem many places around the world, including where I'm from in, in Tasmania, which feeds on nitrogen. And so when we pour a lot of our, particularly synthetic fertilizers onto our crops and it rains and those fertilizers wash into rivers and creeks and flow out into the ocean, then it upsets the balance of natural chemicals in the ocean. And many of these algaes like to feed on that. So they proliferate. And as they do that, they use the oxygen that's in the water and they suck the oxygen out of it. And then you suddenly have a situation where fish and other marine animals don't have the oxygen they need to survive. And so you have these mass die-offs. And we saw one uh, last week, another mass die-off in, uh, in the US, where there were millions of fish covering beaches and that was caused by exactly one of those events happening where we had a dead places in the sea and they caused by a lack of oxygen. And that means then that, you know, you're going to have these wildlife die offs. And so when you look closely enough and you see marine animals starting to turn up to wash up on beaches without any apparent cause, then if we look closely and we start doing tests on their skin and on their meat, 
uh, and their internal organs, we can often find that these are problems that we've created and we've caused. So initially, people could say that it's healthy to eat fish if we think about a couple, say, decades ago. But today, it would still probably be healthy if we would not have all those toxins, all those microplastics and all of that is in the waters today. And I think I've even seen statistic. I'm not so sure how right that one is, but they said that one consumes roundabout one credit card amount of plastic per month in our body because we're just yeah. consuming so many microplastics from different sources. Yeah, yeah well, I don't eat fish anymore, not yeah. since we made a plastic ocean. And uh, <laughs> most marine scientists I know don't either. And, you know, it's not just because we kind of like these animals and we think that, uh, you know, they're, they're pretty cool to hang out with. It's because they're, they're deadly. Most Western doctors now if uh, will advise pregnant women not to eat fish, uh, particularly bigger fish closer yeah. to the top of the food chain because they have such large amounts of heavy metals, mercury, cadmium, yeah. arsenic, yeah. all of these are contained in their flesh as it bioaccumulates. But also, you know, what we found when we were studying mollusks and shellfish was that, for example, in the North Sea, the average oyster contains about eight pieces of plastic. That's every single oyster. Yeah. So if you're eating shellfish, then you are consuming plastic and the chemicals. And the thing about shellfish is that they're incredibly helpful and they're being used now in places like the Hudson River in the US and, and other places to clean places up. One shellfish, one mussel will filter 30 liters of water every hour. And so if you put a bunch of mussels or oysters into a tank of dirty water, it will clean that tank. You go back to it in an hour and it'll be absolutely clean. So that they perform this wonderful service for us. But you can imagine what they're filtering and therefore what's in their meat and, wow. uh, and, and what that can do to us. So today, yes, it's definitely not healthy to eat fish as a regular part of your appetite. To your point, there have been measurements. The credit card is a measurement. But we also now know that we are also breathing in so many small particles of plastic now floating in the air that uh, scientists have evidence that we're breathing in the plastic the size of a credit card every week. Every week. So we're not only consuming it from our food table, we're also breathing it in. And we now know that it is getting into the brain. It's passing the blood vessel brain barrier now. And scientists are starting to study, well, what does that mean? What does it mean to have these plastic particles in our lung uh, cavities yeah can we get rid of it exactly that's uh, scary and swell as it really has a impact on everything in our system the endocrine system the way how our hormones are working i think the list could go on and on mm. one of the topics that you've been working on in your recent uh, film and documentary is about glaciers and your latest very impressive documentary is called The Last Glaciers. Could you explain why are glaciers so important also to the well-being of our planet and to us as well? Yeah, another cheery topic um, <laughs> with, with a terrible headline, but, but it's true. So what we discovered, um, and these are all, all of these issues are related. I mean, I'm very interested and I study the relationship between singles, plastics, biodiversity loss and climate and how that affects us. And The Last Glaciers, it started out actually as, as an extreme sports film, not as a climate film. Um, but as we, we went to film in the wintertime in the Alps, uh, there wasn't any snow. And as I started being curious, asking scientists and meteorologists in the area about what was happening, I was told that this was caused by climate uh, and the climate was changing. And that was a result of human intervention and it was affecting all of the mountains. And the reason this is a problem and why we decided to do the film was because most of us see glaciers as just these pretty white fluffy things on the tops of mountains or great things to ski down. But they actually serve an incredibly important purpose globally. First of all, they reflect heat and energy back into the atmosphere. So they keep the temperature of the planet. They help regulate the temperature of the planet, keep it cool. So as they go, they expose the brown dark rock, which operates in the opposite direction, it actually absorbs heat and will warm the earth and create temperature spikes. So as the glaciers retreat, they stop reflecting heat. The brown rock actually attracts the heat and keeps it, heats the mountain up and makes that melting process happen even faster and then changes the uh, weather events that happen within those mountain ranges. The other thing, of course, is that they're great water storage devices. And for many countries, 
it is the primary source of water. So for example, in Peru, which is one of the driest countries on the planet, Lima's in the top 10 of the driest cities on the planet, most of their water comes from the annual melt that happens in the mountains with the water as it runs down the river systems. It provides water for hydration, for crops, for livestock, for mining. There's a lot of gold mines and silver mines for manufacturing. But as those glaciers are receding, and Peru has recorded a loss of half of its glaciers in the last 30 years, they've measured how many glaciers they have via satellite, and today they've shown that they've lost 50% of those, and that most of them will go by the end of the century. And so what does that mean for Peru? Well, it means it has no water for any of the things that we just mentioned. And this is being replicated around the planet. So the Himalaya, for example, which is known as the third pole, because it has so much ice. The meltwater from the Himalaya feeds 12 of the biggest river systems throughout Asia and in fact the world. And they provide, once again, water for everything. I mean, you, you know, there's a lot of manufacturing centers are in India and Bangladesh where a lot of garments are made. So a t-shirt takes about 22,000 liters of water to make, it's a lot of water. So once the water goes in these places, it's not just affecting the ability to grow food or manufacture goods, for example, in the Hindu Kush region, which affects 2 billion people there, but it affects one in three people around the world who buy those products. So, you know, we buy products that are made in India and Bangladesh and China that's exported to the US and Europe. We buy food products from these food basins. So what happens when that all stops? Where do we go to for our food? Simply because there is no water. So it's an incredibly complex system but the outcome is very simple. And that's you know why we made the film. We, we want to bring attention to this because it's something that needs to be reversed. Yeah, fantastic that you are putting that out there because I think all those locations that you go with your team are locations that not every average person will be able to see in their lifetime. And that's why it's so special that you can bring that to everybody's living room and they can be aware about what is going on without needing to go to extreme uh, dangers. <laughs> Yeah, we film them in that way. We film them as though we're taking the audience with us. Yeah. And we want the audience to experience what we're experiencing on camera as we go up into these mountains and we see for the first time all of these glaciers just receding. And we go into villages and we talk to local people who would tell us that, you know, in the past 10, 20, 30 years, these waters have stopped coming down through the valleys, which is affecting them. And many of them are moving into cities to, to find jobs as their farms just dry up and they're not able to provide the food that they used to. So uh, it's very much a technique we use. It's important, I think, for people to empathize that they need to feel as though they're there. Yeah, exactly. And it's also that great capacity that you have to make it as a nice storytelling so that people are actually interested to watch it together with their family members. Because many times, if I think about documentaries, if I mean, I have a teenage daughter, she will be rolling her eyes and say, oh, a documentary, that's probably going to be boring. But if you put it into a storyline, and it gets really interesting to know, okay, what's going to happen? And how's the end going to look? That is something that it really encourages everybody from the family to watch. <laughs> and to be aware at the end. Yeah, yeah. With the last glaciers, with that in mind, this film isn't aimed at environmentalists. It's not aimed at scientists. It's not aimed at people who understand the climate crisis and know that we're responsible. It's aimed at people who don't understand the science, who may be in denial of the problem. And we do that by including extreme sports in it. So there's adventure. The cameras follow us as we climb these mountains to get into these areas with the scientists to see what's going on. And then in order to film them in a low carbon way and also get off the mountain quickly, we paraglide off the tops wow. of these mountains. And some of these places that have never been paraglided off before. And, you know, we're the first people to, to attempt it and to do it. And it doesn't always go according to plan. Uh, in fact, we opened the film with one of the most disastrous flights we had, which resulted in a crash. Wow. But we feel that that's necessary to bring into the storytelling, the excitement, the action and the risk so that we can get people like your daughter to watch the film because it's not just a film about science and climate, it's also about human beings. It's about human endeavor and challenges and overcoming personal challenges yeah. uh, and the excitement of these sports as we travel the world trying to understand uh, what's going on. Yeah. 
That sounds really exciting. And I think for you as well, it was a challenge because you had to really get accustomed to seeing those heights because you're usually quite often in water and now you're in the mountains and that's probably a, a change of scenery from your side and to get accustomed to that kind of danger. Totally not my environment, mountains. <laughs> um, I'm much better down at uh, sea level for sure. And so I had to train for 12 months in te the technique of para-alpinism. I had to learn how to, to ice climb, to mountain climb, uh, to paraglide. And we did that in the Alps before we filmed a lot of that as well. But uh, I have a fear of heights yeah. and getting myself overcoming that fear, which was a mental process and a mental challenge, was very significant, but I thought it was something that had to be done so we could bring this story to people. But it's also a great analogy, you know, the, the challenge that I went through as an individual to overcome that was an analogy to the great challenge we have as, as collectively as humans to overcome these challenges we've got with climate and the environment and biodiversity loss uh, and the reasons that we have to do it. Amazing. Where can the listeners, as of when can they watch The Last Glaciers? Is it already out? We did a very special short version for IMAX, okay. um, which we put on the big screens. So if they go to IMAX.com, The Last Glaciers, and search for it, they can either see where it is screening on large cinemas around the world, or they can send a note to IMAX and ask them, and they'll send them. Uh, but the whole film was meant to be a cinematic film, which we've just finished. Um, a few months ago, I returned from Antarctica, where we filmed a continent in great stress. And Antarctica is incredibly important as a polar region to us, but it's uh, it's under assault. It's melting. There are pollution issues. There's industrial fishing, which is causing massive problems. And so we've included that in in the film. I just came back from Glasgow, where we finished editing it, putting the soundtrack to it, uh, and we hope to release it now in August in cinemas and on platforms. And so we're about to go to market with it so that we yeah. can find partners to get the film out there and get it seen by as many people as we possibly can. Excellent, excellent. Well, I'm really looking forward to seeing that one. <laughs> there is one topic that I get, I would say, confronted with from time to time when I'm always trying to spread the word and to motivate people to be more aware of what is happening. And what is your response to people who say, well, the, every thousand years, there is a specific cooling and heating uh, process within the, the globe because we are going through those stages sometimes. And that's why now we're just going through that warmer phase and they're selling it as global warming. And I know personally that's not the right thing, but what would be your answer to that? Yeah, you know, I understand that. And a lot of that is because the science hasn't been explained properly. And I was one of those people. And that's why I made the film, because I discovered how to understand the science. And in fact, I was at a conference in Hong Kong giving a talk on the on a plastic ocean and met a scientist from uh, Grenoble who worked at the or ran the oldest glacial institute on the planet. And he showed this graph and explained why they know about what's happening to climate and why we as humans are causing it, causing the heating outside of normal cycles. And he's the head of a project called the Ice Memory Project. And so this is a group of scientists that go around the world and they take ice cores, they drill into ice, into glaciers, and they pull out these cores from different depths. And trapped in these cores are frozen bubbles, which are, represent the atmosphere going back a million years. So they can pull one ice core out and go back 50,000 years. They can pull another one out, go back 100 years, 100,000, they can pull another one out and measure what was happening in the atmosphere a million years ago. Wow. And so in those frozen bubbles, they can measure the amount of nitrous oxide, the amount of methane, the amount of carbon dioxide, um, the amount of water vapor, uh, even that they can tell the temperature of what the planet was like going back then. And so they've been able to, to measure how the atmosphere has changed, how these cycles have actually worked. And what they have is a graph that shows this natural oscillation of all of these chemicals changing their composition as the earth rotates around the sun over these great cycles. And there've been eight major ice ages in the last million years. And as the earth spins further away from the planet, it's cooled, the ice has formed, it's got closer, some of that ice has melted, not all of it. And so this has gone on and on. And what they show is that it goes naturally up until 160 years ago, which is the start of the Industrial Revolution, we started burning particularly uh, petroleum, and all of these gases just go 
off the chart. We see CO2 double, methane quadruple, nitrous oxide becomes a massive problem. And more importantly, the temperature just spikes off the yeah. chart. And they're able to show that that's caused by the burning of fossil fuels because they also start to measure soot that starts mm -hmm. to appear in the levels of the ice core. So you start to see these particular matter certain size just starting to become more prevalent and more prevalent and more prevalent till you see these black lines uh, which comes you know falls out of the atmosphere as we burn fossil fuels so there's absolutely no argument that we've caused these cycles to change this isn't a natural cycle we're seeing uh, naturally speaking glaciers don't melt with hundreds of meters of, of length within you know decades which is what's happening now it takes thousands and thousands and thousands of years for that to happen but these things are happening now in decades so we've sped up these processes. We've caused extreme weather because of the heat now in the atmosphere and, and at the ocean surface level. We've caused extreme weather to become more extreme. So we're seeing more extreme weather events, but we're also seeing them doing more damage because they're stronger, they're more powerful, they're faster than they've ever been before. And there's absolutely no denying that because it's all measured, it's all researched over many decades and the evidence is overwhelming. Yeah. And you've got 98% of the world's climate scientists saying that this is a major problem. We're, we're the cause of it. Yeah. And we need now to start doing something about it. Wow. So who do you listen to? Do you listen to the 98% or do you listen to the 2% that generally speaking, as we found in making the film, have a reason to be in denial? Hmm. And it's, it's generally related to the business that they're in or people who don't like being told that they can't do something. You can't fly in a private jet. You shouldn't drive a massive four-wheel drive. Um, you know, you, you shouldn't be burning forests to create farming land in the Amazon. Um, exactly. People don't like being told what to do. And particularly if it gets in the way of a profit-making exercise. And yeah. So most deniers uh, are funded by these industries that perpetuate that, like oil and gas, as we've found out. Thanks for that very uh, good explanation. I'll be uh, referring to that study that you mentioned to whoever comes up with that question towards uh, the natural cycles. That yes, well, we show, you know, we demonstrate this in the film. So if you watch the film, yeah. we kind of explain. We have uh, that scientist that I met, actually, yeah. Jerome Chapelez. He's in the film. Okay. And he explains how glaciers are formed and how the ice memory project works and how these ice cores are these incredible libraries of information that go back so far and that are able to paint a very clear picture of what's happened over time. Yeah, amazing. Well, so I would say from what we have spoken so far, yeah, we have gone through a few of those issues that we have created as humans in this planet. And if we look at the root causes, I would say if it's the topic, the glaciers or the melting sea ice or the extreme weather events, most of all the root cause is due to the fact that we are increasing the greenhouse gases. And from what you have seen in the statistics, what is the main causes of the greenhouse gases? Okay, so extracting fossil fuels and burning them is the number one problem we have today. That's causing between 36 and 45% of the greenhouse gases in the atmosphere. And you know, and that's primarily CO2, okay. and we've seen a significant spike in CO2, but also things like methane. Uh, and methane is actually a more dangerous gas in larger quantities. And we're seeing also an increase as we're heating parts of the planet because we're burning fossil fuels. We're also seeing the ocean surface temperatures I've mentioned heat up. And the largest greenhouse gas actually is water vapor. So as the surface of the ocean temperature rises, we're seeing more water vapor go up into the air. And as it goes into the atmosphere, it is supercharging these extreme weather events I was just talking about. Wow. So if we look at it and we break it down, as I said, 36 to 45% is burning fossil fuels. We've got agriculture and forestry, which causes about 24% of the greenhouse gases. So that's industrial farming, pretty much. Industrial beef, if you eat beef, then one of the, you know, the things that you can do as a consumer is reduce your meat intake. Yeah. And then you'll become part of the solution, uh, particularly industrial farming. And it goes all the way down to flying. Yeah. So if you fly a lot, then aviation causes 3% of the greenhouse gases that enter the atmosphere. Construction, particularly the production of cement, causes about 6%. And of course, when you break down those figures, then it's easy to realize that 
many of us are actually part of each one of those statistics in terms of the products that we use, the houses that we live in, um, the cars that we drive or the transportation that we take. So it becomes, I guess, a project to reprogram the yeah. way that we interact with the natural environment and our own daily lifestyle. How can we become part of the solution? Well, stop eating, you know, reduce beef consumption. Take the train and public transportation rather than using private transportation where you can. Um, one of the things you can do if you own a home is make your home energy efficient. And this is in fact a very, very big solution. Um, triple glaze your windows, install heat pumps, put solar arrays on your roof, create your own energy and sell it. And then you become a net user of power and you can actually become net zero yourself or even negative just by climate proofing your home. So there are many options open to us now and we have the solutions, we have the technology, we have the alternatives. But primarily the number one thing we must do is we need systemic change. We need to change uh, how we view economics, what's important. We need to put true cost into the equation of everything we do. If we pull oil out of the ground, then what's the true cost of that? How much government subsidies of our taxpayers' money is going into that? The cost of pollution for the local people, the human health costs that they're left with, um, the cleanup costs. Once we do those equations, we find that actually fossil fuels are not very good to our economy. They're even worse for the environment. And that's why we should uh, move very quickly in the transition to renewable energy and renewable energy sources. Fantastic. I'm so happy that we're also speaking about solutions because I think that's one of the mistakes that a lot of people do, that they always give the scenarios of where we are today, but then they don't give the end consumer the solutions that are available. And sometimes they're very simple solutions that each one of us can adopt. And what I also realized that, I mean, my wife and I, we became plant-based since over 10 years now. And we actually thought that that's so amazing that anytime you do something good for yourself and you feel that you're thriving, automatically somehow it has something good for the environment as well because we turn mm -hmm. to become plant-based because of our health but then later we say oh that has so much other ripple effects out there like reducing the amount of damage that we're doing to the environment through all of that mass farming and, and agriculture and if we think about reducing the transportation and you say okay i'm not going to take the car today maybe i'm going to walk to my work then automatically you're doing some movement for your body you're doing something good for yourself and at, at the same time it's linked to something good for the environment again so many many things yeah. i have realized it's like wow it's amazing if i support myself i'm supporting automatically the environment as well correct yes and to your point when you start to plug these solutions in, as you say, your own health improves. So walk to work. We know that if you do 10,000 steps a day and there's apps that you can download for free, yeah. which help you monitor that. 10,000 steps is all you need, movement, do that. Grow your own food. I lived in Hong Kong for over 20 years, I was based there. And, so, and I used to compost and grow my own food in a tiny little balcony in my apartment in Hong Kong. And the way I could do that was turning my organic food waste into compost, which is very easy to do, and using that as soil to then feed. So I was solving two problems there. First of all, I was getting rid of 30% of waste going to landfill. I was creating my own food. I knew the food was clean. It's not being transported from one country to another, so I've got no carbon footprint in doing that. And I could sustain myself quite easily and just top it up by through organic farms that were in the area as they became more and more prolific. So if you plug in these solutions, yes, it takes a change of habit and that's the hardest thing is actually starting on that step-by-step step, but doing that. But once you implement all of these into your lifestyle, you suddenly have a different lifestyle. You become healthier, happier, it's cheaper to maintain and it's great for your kids. And you can actually get your kids in on these projects and get them involved. You can get your kids to help you make shampoos and conditioners and soaps and cleaning products that are very easy to make with natural products that you can do in your home that save you so much money and also reduce your plastic footprint because you're not importing all of this plastic packaging into your home, which you then have to be responsible for getting rid of. So yeah, to your point, it just takes starting down that path. There's a lot of research now online people that are doing these sorts of things and have these sorts of lifestyles and no one expects you to be perfect the one thing that i tell people is it's okay 
to be imperfect, but it's better than doing nothing at all. So start down the path, have a lot of fun in doing it and turn it into something that provides optimism within your home, your family, your community about actually being part of the solution and, and trying to solve many of these problems. Fantastic. If we think how many we are now in this planet, then if we can really infect anybody else around us towards the same direction and to lead by example and have that mindset of continuous improvement. As you said, we don't have to be perfect from today to tomorrow because that's putting a lot of pressure on everybody. We just have to say, okay, I have a specific way of living today. Maybe tomorrow I'm doing a small change. That's a continuous improvement that I will then try to adopt step by step, year after year. And maybe in 10 years from now, I have changed 15 or 20 different habits that used to be bad habits, but are today now good ones. And that is really, I think, the power of our collectiveness, because we're just so many humans now on this planet. <laughs> yeah. And look, and, you know, we've got to be careful about not becoming anxious or, you know, actually making our kids developing anxiety. We have to understand that many of these problems are not individual problems that we're responsible for as individuals. Yes, many of us, we have to get to work in a car. And what we expect are, is that governments, and this is why systemic change is such an important solution, is we expect our governments to legislate, to help us have access to new technology, to new products. That means that we can change our lifestyles and become better consumers. But that takes systemic change. You know, I do place a lot of emphasis on blame where it goes back to corporates and governments and leaders, civic and community leaders, who have it within their power to rewrite legislation, to adopt new technology, to support entrepreneurs that are building better products so that we as consumers have access to this, so that we can fly from country to country and enjoy a holiday without worrying about the thousands of tons of gasoline that we're burning during that path. So it's important that we understand that we also need to affect change by electing the appropriate representatives in our communities and at national level who can affect that sort of change. And that works. We saw that happen in Australia at the last election last year, where a conservative government supported by oil, coal and gas was removed from power because people had gone through some of the biggest fires that Australia had ever experienced, had had three years of constant flooding. They'd been personally affected by climate change. And so the Australian community elected independents who campaigned on change, systemic change, based on the problems with the climate that Australia is now experiencing. It's so encouraging to hear those stories. And it's an example. It could be like the best practices for other countries as well, where people can realize that if it works in other places, that through our power on electing the right people, it's going to make a big change, especially if they think about what are the things that our government is actually subsidizing? Are they subsidizing good stuff? Like, for example, maybe where people can get accessible and, and cheaper vegetables and fruits. And not that it's the other way around, that meat is so cheap because meat is being subsidized. But for that, you have to pay a lot of money to go to the grocery store and people who don't have much income, they say, well, I don't have much option. Yeah, I just go for the cheapest option. So I think really governments do have an extremely high role here. Absolutely. Absolutely. And it's within our power to change governments if they're not doing the job properly. Yeah. And uh, we've got to be active. You've got to be yeah. proactive. Yeah. And one of the biggest dangers, I think, to humanity and, and everything that happens to us is that apathy is that uh, you either do know and you don't care or you don't take the time to go on and understand what's happening. Yeah. And I think apathy will be our biggest killer. But one thing that is important to remember is that we need to change the vocabulary and the slogans. We don't need to save the planet. The planet will go on whether we're here or not. <laughs> it has gone on for four billion years before we came. It will go on for another four billion years after we leave. What we need to do is save the human. Yeah. And the only way to save the human is to protect the Garden of Eden that we live in, this tiny rock and the life support systems that allow us to exist alongside other species. Yeah. We are seeing a great loss of biodiversity. Many species are becoming extinct through to human intervention. We will be one of those species if we keep going down the path that we're going. So we need to change our way. Well, and I thank you, Craig, for being part of that puzzle where you can hopefully awaken a lot of people 
through your fantastic work that you're doing with the movies and documentaries. And that's really making it this knowledge more accessible to everyone. Today's podcast went so fast. I probably could just continue speaking for another hour with you. Thank you so much for your time. I would like to ask you one final question. Where can the listeners find you if they want to find out more about your work? Uh, on social media. So I, I report a lot on what's happening. And as I travel and advise governments around the world, I kind of let people know what's happening. So Instagram, I'm the real Craig Leeson, at the real Craig Leeson. Um, <laughs> social media, Twitter, uh, LinkedIn, I'm just Craig Leeson. So if you search for me, uh, you'll find me there and, and can follow and become part of the community. And like you, we've got plans this year to start a podcast that focuses on many of the issues that we've been talking about, but drills into what's happening on the ground so that people can see in real time, not only the work that's being done, but what's not being done or the legislative process that's taking place, what's working, what's not working. Perfect. Excellent. I'll be putting all of that into the show notes in case somebody's driving or doing other things that they cannot take notes. So therefore, they can just click on the link and have access to your work and to your services. Craig, it has been a lovely conversation. I'm so grateful for your time and for giving us all of that fantastic information. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. And uh, it's always great uh, talking to people and, and, and sharing the knowledge because ultimately, we need the awareness to affect change and to start with the solutions. Without awareness, we don't start on the solutions. So thank you very much. Absolutely. Thank you, Craig. Bye-bye. What an outstanding conversation with Craig. We covered so many important topics today. We increased the awareness on the problems we face with plastics and why it has become a real issue for our health. I encourage you to watch his outstanding documentary called A Plastic Ocean where you can find the trailer in the show notes. Further, we covered the topic of where we get our fresh air, which is not only from trees and rainforests, but also from our oceans. That is why it is so important to treat them both with respect to preserve their beauty and their ability to keep us healthy. In Craig's new documentary called The Last Glaciers, we learn the importance of glaciers, which is something that not even I knew about. And I'm so grateful for obtaining this heightened awareness. We also spoke about some misconceptions about global warming, discussed root causes, and most importantly, we covered some of the solutions. It is very important to be aware of what our actions are doing to our planet and to our health. But now, it is time to take the next step, which is to act. Most of the environmental issues we are encountering today is because of the greenhouse gases, which come from burning fossil fuels, such as coal, natural gas, and petroleum for energy use. Then it also comes from farming livestock, which is the animal agriculture, and lastly, from cutting down our forests. Take a moment to reflect and decide on which topic you personally would like to take action. Think about your unique contribution on making our home a better place. Please share your actions and tag me on Instagram. My account is called health underscore happiness underscore planet. In the show notes, you will find all the links on where to find Craig and his outstanding work. I encourage you to please look at the website of The Last Glaciers. Here you will find lots of well-summarized information. Additionally, to make life easier for consumers, Craig is also supporting a website called Koei, which is www.coee.eco for Echo, which will help people purchase products that are good for us and our environment. This podcast was sponsored by Wave Business Excellence Footprint, an online training company that cares about your career development, your personal development, and the well-being of this planet we call home. On the website www.wave-bef.com, you will find online courses designed for managers and employees who strive to become the leaders of tomorrow in the corporate world. I value your feedback and I would love to hear from you. Please rate, subscribe and share this episode with those whom you think will profit from this information. Your support means the world to me and it motivates me to keep producing content that adds value to your life. I look forward to seeing you in the next episode. Big hugs everyone!